I think the decisive moment is the most developed thought in photography. In that moment, it's that friction that you can put in there between you and the subject or you and your construction. It's like writing a piece of music, but it's not until you play it that you can hear it. And that's how I feel about a photograph. That was Full Fullendale, and this is Nordic Portraits. Full Fullendale is an art photographer who over the past 15 years has built an impressive body of work, including a series of deeply personal projects that have resulted in the publishing of critically acclaimed books and exhibitions within Denmark and abroad. Full has also made a global name for herself as the creative force behind the visual image of Danish pop star Mu, and her artwork is included in the collection of the National Museum of Photography. Full, welcome to Nordic Portraits. Thank you so much. Full, I wondered if we could start by going back to 2008, where shortly after witnessing the demolition of your home, namely the youth house, Ungdomhusl, you decided to start a new chapter and relocate to New York. And I, I just wondered what you specifically can remember about that time in your life. It's so interesting because you know, getting off the metro stop, going here to do this with you, I passed by and it always gets me. It makes me sad and weirded out. And I was like, when am I going to be able to sort of reconcile with this feeling of loss with this place? I've also lately, because I've been gone from having a home in Copenhagen for a long time until the past two years, sort of started meeting up with old friends from the community that I haven't really seen in a very long time So it's coming back in this weird way. But 2008 was the youth house or Ungdomshusel. It was my mom having cancer. It was leaving Fetamogana. I was publishing my first photo book as a young photographer with Kaiser Gulba, the Swedish photographer. And it was moving to New York and meeting all these new people and feeling free. Copenhagen was so loaded like looking punk and even taking the bus, people would have an opinion about you. Or not even just Copenhagen, like going to my hometown on the west coast of Denmark. Everywhere people felt like they could just talk to you about it in this very critical way where everyone had an opinion about it because it was so in the media and it was very destructive. Friends were in jail. We were doing all this work around that, you know, making merch to support the movement. We were doing demos. People were in the middle of creating serious post-traumatic stress disorder without really knowing because everyone was young. (laughs) Yeah, so leaving and all of a sudden being in New York and I got to New York in a really great way where being a part of a punk community here opened doors for me there. Like I got to stay at a punk house called The Fort in New York, in Brooklyn, where my friend had gone the year before and sort of made friends. And then because she made friends, I was friends. Because when the punk community is really great, that's how it works. It's like extended family. And there's this trust because, well, if we trust her and she trusts you, duh. So I ended up living at this punk house called The Fort for months in a bunk bed with like a big futon squashed in. It was called The Taco Shell. (laughs) (laughs) And I just made all these new friends and I 
for the first time in a long time, just felt free. But it was also this time where my mom was really ill and had terminal cancer. And I got called back in the spring that it was time to come home because she was passing away. So it was also this year of losing my mom at the age of 23. So it was like a very strange time. And then while being there for the first run, I applied to ICP where I studied. So after my mom passed, I went back to New York. And then it was my home for a very long time. So yeah, 2008 was strange, I would say. How was it for you contrasting what you experienced in New York with everything you'd known from your hometown? You grew up in Western Jutland in Vilsana. Yeah. I'm interested in what that place is like and what it was like for you to navigate small town community life there. Yeah, Vilsana is this like small town on the west coast of Denmark and it's very present because I'm very close with my family and my family is very much a part of that town. It's the youngest town in Denmark, meaning that it's not like a very historical place in that way, but it's very strong-willed. It's on the West Coast. It's by the bay and the ocean. You know, it's just like there's a lot of power there. People work hard. People are fighters. Everyone is sort of weirdly self-made, it feels like. But I am from one of the families that were there before there was even a town. My grandma was the youngest out of 13 kids and... My grandpa came to the area to start like a local fiskeprovincing, a grocery store, basically. And my dad and his brothers and a business partner took that over and ran that for over 50 years. So my family is very rooted in that town. That was a long introduction to the Senate, but shout out to my hometown. <laughs> um, and then also growing up, knowing very early on that I was different. It was very apparent in my family that I rocked in a different way than my older siblings. But also being close with them, it was like an emotional struggle. And I don't think I really came to terms with it until maybe like five years ago. Wow. I've gone back there so much. I have two nephews that I'm very close to, but I'm also close to the rest of my family. So it's always been a place that I had to go back to, even when I was angry at it. And when I left, I left when I was 17. I was definitely, I needed to leave. I felt like so different and in a fight with everything about that place. So I went to a boarding school in Fünn. That was sort of my stepping stone to Copenhagen. And I had friends in the center that was like-minded and freaks and weirdos. But it was sort of like that thing, which I think a lot of people recognize from like smaller communities where oh, the heavy metal kid and the grunge kid and the sort of like weirdly into Tupac kid would come together and hang because they were all different than the norm. But they also didn't have that much in common necessarily. Mm. So leaving and then ending up in this boarding school, meeting all these people that were into the exact same thing that I was, I got to really start doing photography. I met a lot of punks. I would go to Ulense and hang out at this place called Sigis with my left-wing friends, and it was just like a little more progressive. So when I got to Copenhagen, I was just so ready for it. I was like, bring it fucking on. <laughs> so that was sort of my entry to here. And also, I dropped out of high school. So coming to Copenhagen, I was doing these classes at the Frick Gymnasium in Nürburgring, which was also like, okay, yeah, this is the dream. There's weirdos <laughs> everywhere. 
Is it true that when you dropped out of high school that you were asked by the school psychologist to write in a journal? Yeah, it's true. And what was the first thing you wrote? (laughs) So I wanted to drop out for a full year, but the guidance counselor, which was this nice woman, kept being like, no, we need people like you here. And I was like, but I don't need to be here. (laughs) And my dad is a traditional guy. He was not into me dropping out, but I was doing horrible. My grades were horrible. I was so depressed. I remember there was this Danish show called Reisehol on TV every Sunday and I would just lie there staring at this TV show and going, oh my God, I have to go to school tomorrow. And it was awful. So the last resort was my parents and the guidance counselor was like, we're going to send you to this psychologist who's connected to the high school. So she gave me a journal and she was like, okay, if you don't want to be here, you got to make a plan for where you want to be. That's your assignment. You got to write down what you're going to do. Because I found it, it reappeared in a moving box at my dad's house some years ago. It says, and I don't remember it. I'm not exactly sure what I want to do, but I believe I want to do photography and I want to be acknowledged. (laughs) (laughs) And this was me like 16, just being really pretentious, but it's what I've been chasing ever since. And at that point I hadn't really done photography. My mom was a graphic designer and I was definitely interested in visual arts, but photography was not even introduced to me at that point. So I think even before having a camera really in my life, imagery was in my life Mm. or knowing the persona, the identity around wanting to be a creator of sorts. So you mentioned that it's only been probably in the last five years that you've come to terms with your past or your upbringing. What changed there? Um, I've lost a lot of people in my life. My sister passed away. We'll probably talk about that if we talk about my projects, but my sister passed away when I was 19 and then my mom when I was 23. And losing two key members like that in a family really changes the dynamic of everything. All of a sudden you have to reassess all your relationships. And it was like that for me and I think my family too. I've spoken to my brother about that. And that was what was happening. And even though that happened earlier on, I think in the last five years or so, I sort of just took on myself to sort of be there more. I did a big project with this artist called Las Creo, called Solstice, Solvau, which made me be there more. So coming from being able to visit, being there for extended periods over the summers, being in contact with my dad or the nephews or whatever, but still leaving to all of a sudden being like, okay, I'm committed to this place. I fucking signed a contract with the commune. What's the English The word? local council. Yeah. To do a project here over like years. I am in it. So that's when that happened for me. Because all of a sudden, okay, I'm not just this exotic artist weirdo that comes back once in a while and parties at the local bar and go hang with my family. All of a sudden I'm here. That was when it happened. And now I feel I'm still not in agreement with a lot of social constructs out there, but I love it. I love the place that I'm from. I love my family. I see myself always having a home there. Even, knock on wood, that my dad will be around for a long time to come, but like even when he's not, I want a place there. I will probably never be like a full-time resident because I do need bigger cities and diversity, but I do really love it. Hmm. And... When your elder sister, Henrietta, passed away tragically during the birth of her second child, 
and then your mother lost her battle with cancer in 2008. How was it for you re-engaging with the local community back there? Because you'd moved away to bigger cities and found yourself. So was it jarring to then be thrust back into the dynamics of your old childhood? Um, I think some of the old school values that I am not mad at is that there really is a community in that way. Hmm. Like from when I got back from New York to my mom's passing, it was around a week and all my siblings and my mom's best friend, Alice and my dad, we all gathered at the house. She was in the bedroom and we took turns being with her and we would just drink and eat and play cards and be together. It was a really beautiful time. And every day people would just show up with meals And I remember that so clearly, like going to the door and another neighbor was just there and they had like arranged this whole meal train around us, family and neighbors and whatever. And I was like, this is special. They don't do this everywhere else. This is a community. And still to this day, people will engage with me about my sister and my mom. If we're at like the local annual celebration of the town, people will come up and have a beer and be like, I miss your mom. She was, And not only in my family are these two people still present, but they are in town. Hmm. They help keeping the spirit of them alive. And that is so incredibly special. My nephews are now 19 and 26 and they live there. And the youngest, Andreas, is the spitting image of my sister. So people really react to him in that way. And he's like, yeah, I didn't know her. (laughs) But all that stuff is special. So I've always really, really appreciated that. That's probably why I can forgive some of the politics and all of that stuff that also comes with small towns in Denmark. Yeah. You mentioned Andreas and Mass, his older brother. Can you share a little bit about what the starting point was for you to undertake this project, which became Nephews? an exhibition and a book, such a seminal project for you. I'm just curious at what point in the aftermath of dealing with the loss of Henrietta that this became a subject for you. Yeah, it was two years later and I was at Fatsimogena, the school that I'm now a director at. And um, it was on my second semester and Morten Bo, the founder and one of my mentors, he gave me an assignment to do a book for my mom. This was right around the time when she was diagnosed with cancer. And it was called Dear Mom. And I had to do a book with all the stuff that I couldn't tell her in imagery. And I was so mad at that project. I thought it was like so on the nose. But I did it and it ended up being this great experience. And I think that's where I really got the nag of, okay, this is my toolbox. It became clear in that, that that's what I work from. So even though I'm interested in universal subject matters, It needs to come from somewhere within my own history for it to really sort of have like a tension or friction. And obviously my thoughts were not this developed at age 20, 21 at Fetsamogana. But looking back at it, that's definitely some of the stuff that started to be apparent. So I did a couple of stage photographs of the boys. My mom helped me out. It was in my dad's old office on the harbor in Villasene and my granddad's old desk and stuff. And I dressed them up as these adults and they were signing a contract because there's something about looking at them being like, okay, this is it. You guys are on your own. You got all of us around you, but there's this abandonment that I can't even relate to. I was very close with my sister 
she was sort of close with all of us. She was really good at tying the family together. We all feel the closest to her, you know, that kind of feeling. But then looking at them being like, you're not going to have this. Yeah, so I had them like pose as these child grown-ups. And that image, I poured like iced tea into these really nice glasses and all this stuff. And I showed the image at Fetsa Mugena and I was going to do it as our final exhibition on the second term. And Morten Bo was just ripping it apart. He was like, what the hell is this? This is too sentimental. It's wah, wah. Because he didn't want me to go into crying over my own tragedy. He's like, step up, be strong. do stuff." And I'm like, yeah, but this is awesome. So I just kept doing it. And I think I did it in spite in the beginning. I kept, because I was like, I'll show you. I'll show you you can do this in a way where it's not just crying or weeping or sad. You can use it for something. Yeah, so I did that session and then I just kept going. And in the beginning, obviously, I had no idea that this would be the foundation of my praxis in this way, but I knew it was important. Hmm. It's a 12-year project. Yeah. So I'm just so curious if you were to take us into your mindset. Obviously, your artistic process is evolving greatly over such a long period of time, but did you always have one eye on the end point or having a single objective for the project? Or was it more just a case of accumulating works over time and not so much worrying about the bigger picture or is it? No, the latter. Okay. (laughs) I definitely, as a young growing image maker, just was collecting work and using them whenever a new idea would arise. I was so young and it was like, oh, I'm really into this. So now another nephew's photo is going to be in this. I borrowed a really wild digital camera. Let's do like it, you know. But that's also what I think is special about that project for me is that it follows my journey. You can see my progress as a photographer. But the things that were important to keep going at was the staging of them. It's not a documentary project. Very few images in the book have that nature. A few, but not. As a general thing, there's a consent there. They're in the moment with me. So the staging was always there, but the techniques and all of that changes so drastically throughout the book and the project. So I remember when I finally, things came together with the publisher and the gallery and like, let's do this. This is time. People were like, yeah, it's time. We've been waiting for it because people had been noticing, but I was just putting the nephews in everything. I like how it came about because it follows my praxis. And now when I do things, it all has to be so conceptualized in terms of how I work with it for business. And I was liberated from that when I was in my early 20s. Yeah. How then was it for you to put a full stop, a punctuation mark on that project, considering it was of such a personal nature? In the beginning, it was really weird. I think the older mess, I think he was kind of ready for it to be over. He would never say so, but I think he was. Andreas thought it was really weird. He was like, it's so weird that you're home and we're not really doing this anymore because it's been such a part of our conversation for so long. But yeah, no, now it's fine. I'll still photograph them. I just put them in other things. <laughs> <laughs> the show I did earlier this year at Vibo Kunst said, oddly satisfying, they're both in there. <laughs> if they let me, I'll always use them because that's what we've always done. But, you know, they're definitely more to me than just my sister's kids. But yeah, they're growing into these young men and it's just really exciting seeing their life. I'm like, I pre-visualize this image of Mess, the older one, when he has a child. 
I'm excited to photograph. Mm. It'll never stop. I'll never stop. I mean, unless they tell me to. What do you think Henrietta would make of the project? I think she would really love it because she loved family. I know that the family doesn't, we're from Western Jutland, you know, you don't stand on mountains and scream your feelings. But I do feel an appreciation for me having done this. After the book came out and the show was over, I did a talk with Medikia, who is a senior researcher at the Royal Library. And I didn't tell my family to come. I don't know why I didn't invite them, because I usually would invite them, especially when it's a project that they're involved in. I think I was just like, yeah, it's like an afternoon. It's in Copenhagen. But then when I'm standing at the sort of demand, there's this big cafe and like the bookstore, and I'm just floating around there waiting for me to go downstairs to start this. And my brother shows up. My brother is this tall, tattooed, handsome, old fisher man. And he's wearing a blazer. And I'm like, what the fuck are you doing here? (laughs) And he's like, yeah, dad's here too. And I look over and the two of them and like a couple of other members of our extended family are there. And I'm like, guys. (laughs) And then I got nervous, which I don't usually get that nervous in talking about the work. But yeah, so we go downstairs and I'm doing this talk with this person that I really admire. Medikia is such a brilliant mind. Oh my God. And they're sitting right there and I'm for the first time really talking about what this is. And then what I was talking about earlier, how family dynamics change when someone passes. I'm making that point when talking about the work. And all of a sudden I just see this tattooed arm string into the air and someone is like, oh, is there a question? And it's my brother. And he's like, no, I just agree. (laughs) (laughs) And that moment really meant a lot to me because I've been asked this a lot about, do you feel responsible in showcasing these young boys? Like sort of the Sally Mann problem, showing images of children before they're able to really give consent. Or the fact that I speak about my family dynamic all the time in relation to this work. And I've made some of those conversations happen, but not all of them. I'll admit to that. So it happens after I say stuff, right? So the fact that that happened really meant a lot to me. And I don't think they want to talk to me about it for hours on end. But that's how they show support. Or my dad will do like this when he gets a little emotional. Mm. That's lovely. It's nice. You mentioned in relation to the Nephews Project, this staging that happens in preparation for each shoot. And I'm curious about your process more generally, because your work does have this documentary feel, but yet not. I'm interested in how you would describe it. And I recall reading that you actually sketch your ideas when planning before a shoot. Can you share a little about how that process has evolved over time? Well, obviously, like things develop and change and different projects will have like a slightly different nature to them. But for the most part, I'll pre-visualize, I'll get an idea, I'll stick figure my way through it on paper and then I'll do it, right? And then things will happen in the moment because I... When I teach, I say this all the time. Like, I think the decisive moment is the most developed thought in photography. Like, Kari Song, I think that is what it is about for me. Right now, there's all these AI images being talked about. Is the photographer obsolete when you can just type in your photograph and then it's there? But I do think something happens in that moment of you and a subject matter. Can you give me an example of how a decisive moment would look? Well, actually, I will use a not image way of describing it for me. And it's that I had a brilliant teacher at ICP called Bernard Yenna Lewis who described it to me in this way. 
it's like writing a piece of music, but it's not until you play it that you can hear it. That moment, you can read music, right? And people that are really good at reading music will be able to feel it on paper. But for the rest of it, it's not until it's played out loud. And that's how I feel about a photograph. Because photography specifically is all these elements that we all know. It's not like as a painter, they can reinvent what a hand looks like in this way. No, I'm using a real hand that we all know what looks like. It's a reference bank that exists for all of us because we're constantly confronted by it and adding to it. So with photography, re-gathering all these elements that all of us know and are experts on, in that moment, it's that friction that you can put in there between you and the subject or you and your construction hmm. or that the light will change or that, I don't know, like your reflector will fall over so your perfect light setting won't work or whatever. That's for me that moment that'll make it happen. I think Cartier Bresson probably had a more documentary kind of way of describing it of like standing on a street corner and then the moment happened or like whatever. But I think you can take the idea and put it onto almost any photograph that I love. Hmm. Do you think the fact that we're all photographers now with our mobile phones and we've never been more surrounded by imagery has an impact on how we view art photography or do you think that the two are largely unrelated? I don't know. Like I think for the whole time that I've done photography, this has been like a question, not the mobile phone, but the digital image. How are we now collecting images, creating archives, deleting archives, constructing archives, because you might be able to like do a print-on-demand book with your iPhone photos, but you'll delete all the bad ones, right? And this is something that I've talked to many a photographer about, that when you go into an old photo album, all the 36 images from the role will be in the album, even the one where people look trashed or smoking while holding a baby or like a hand will be crossing over or like whatever, all the bad ones will be in there because that's what you did. You got your role developed, you got prints made and you put them all in the photo album and that's gone, right? So in that sense, I do think people are staging in a different way in their lives that will obviously have an effect on how people view photography and like definitely the realm of photography that I'm in. That said though, I also think that it makes it more familiar and less distant and all these things that are really great that I really enjoy. So I think photography is such a hard beast to sort of talk of in terms of art. Hmm. And that's my biggest thing. And it's definitely a thing that I talk and think a lot about. My work is always in really small editions. And I try to sort of, if a collector buys my work, I want them to feel like it's as valuable as their painting but I'm up against like a big fucking Trojan horse. <laughs> and it's just the nature of the beast. I am also able to make money with my craft in a different way than a painter would be on the side or whatever. So pros and cons. But I do think it's interesting that everyone is their own curator now. Hmm. And what is it specifically about photography that interests you, compels you more than any other art form? Well, I love all, I really, my own circle of friends are very diverse in terms of what they do. A lot of them are artists and a lot of them do different kind of art. I love sculpture. I love painting. I love all these things. But 
the thing with photography for me is that it's the first thing I ever realized I was really good at. That's it. That's what triggered it. I'm fucking good at photography. And it's this weird thing that I don't know where it stems from. I don't know how that 16-year-old who had never done it knew that that was the one thing that was going to make them pull through and make a name for themselves and surpass loss and all this shit. I have no idea how, but that's a fact for me. My favorite part of teaching is that when a kid shows up with like a whole pile of images and I get to co-edit with them and make sense of the making sensible. How, why, when you put a string of images together in a certain way, is it magical? And then when the image stands alone, it's shit. I don't know, but it is. <laughs> you know, the first time you help a young artist putting their artist book together, it's a magical moment and I love it. Yeah, so it's pretty unexplainable. And that's how I feel when I see other great photographers work. I'm like, fuck yeah, you got it. That's it. It's a moment and it's weird. I think what keeps me on my toes with it is that it deals with reality in such a specific way that I think is weird and that I don't understand why a photograph is so special. But a good photograph is special. So would it follow to then say that when you are editing your own work or preparing collating work for a new project that that helps you make sense of your own life as much as anything else? It just is my personal life. Like I don't have separation at all, which is good and bad, but this is my life. I don't have kids. I'm not interested in sort of a traditional arrangement in my life. I've accepted that. That's also a part of like the past five years, I think, even just knowing, okay, I lead this weird nomadic lifestyle. My home is Vilsene, Copenhagen, New York, my suitcase, whatever. I live in weird sublets all the time. That's just who I am because my work is where I find peace or where I find confidence. And I don't look at the work and then it makes sense. I make the work because it makes sense. (laughs) So you talk about photography being the one decisive thing that you found or it found you. Yeah. Could you sense that you had a talent for it right from the moment you started shooting at 17 or 18? Or was it more of a gradual progression? Well, at boarding school, no. That was just trying out the dark room and just playing around and like understanding it. I had a great teacher who showed me a bunch of books and all this stuff. And then I went to, uh, I had this really great teacher called Gertrud, who was a teacher at a production school in Lyngby, which had a really great photo department. She was the one that told me. She was this really like tough person, but I really was drawn to her because she felt really truthful. <laughs> Like she wouldn't bullshit you and she would definitely not stroke your ego. But she just looked at me and was like, you need to go to Feta Mugena. I'm going to help you. We're doing this. And I was like, okay. There was someone that just installed this vote of confidence in me with something I did. And then when I got to Feta Mugena, the first assignment, I remember the way the critiques work at Feta Mugena is that you hang your work and the room speaks to you. So you don't speak and you don't explain So I hung the piece on the piece or the photograph sounded very, oh, I hung the piece. No, so I put the photograph on the print and the room was really quiet. And I was like, oh, what does this mean? And a person that was on the second semester just raised his hand and he was like, this is really good. And then I was like, I knew that I thought it was really good. That stands as a moment for me. 
So there was definitely like a build up to it from deciding that this was what I was going to do. But yeah, then I was like, okay, I can make this my life. Hmm. There's a lot of vulnerability though in opening yourself up to criticism. That doesn't seem to be something that overly phases you. Did that resilience or openness come naturally or is that something you've really had to work on? I'm not good at criticism. I am vulnerable and like, but I think the way I present myself, I think people have a hard time criticizing me to my face (laughs) or even having me in the room because the way I present, I also think that a lot of my subject matters are vulnerable and therefore people are not necessarily inclined to tell me if they think it's shit. But I'm down for it because it's my work. And if people have an opinion about it, it's important, right? But I have like a selected crew of people that I talk to about it. Like if I show vulnerable work, it's a selected audience. This is awful because I would never tell any students to do it this way, right? But I'll have an idea. I'll make it. I'll look at it. It's good or bad. That's how it goes. That didn't work. Gone. That works. Great. And you just know. I know. Because there's so many different processes, right? I kind of wish that I had this flaneur way of photographing where I would wander around and it would just come to like, oh my God, the light, whatever. But I don't. Even if I do that kind of work, like I did a book in Texas that was all about being there and more sort of documentaries based in the way I would find subject matters there. But it wasn't until I cracked a way of being like, okay, I've seen women every day in Texas having acrylic nails. I want to go to a nail salon. So it wasn't until I found a way of conceptualizing the documentary feeling of it that I could do it. So I think control is a big part of how I work. And that's why the editing afterward is not the biggest part of my process. You say that control is a big part, but you also tend to use equipment that maybe one wouldn't associate so much with control. Yeah. Um, Point and shoot cameras, for example. What is it about that equipment that appeals to you? Well, I think in the beginning, it was also about just loving the aesthetic of it, right? And I still do, really. I don't use it as much anymore. But it's also about liberating the work because if everything is constructed, you need a little bit of air or poetic justice in there to sort of let the viewer in or else it's just like a beautiful studio portrait. I think it's like an entryway of people having a feeling around it. There's also nostalgia built into 35 millimeter film and this mix of small flash and natural lighting and all these things that work for people's sensibility and makes them think about their own life in a way. That sounds really loaded and it is, but the photo that I just referred to in Texas with the acrylic nails in the nail salon was sort of a big hitter from that series. It's two different women holding hands. The hands are pointing down. It's called Girlfriends. And it's these two women that I found in this nail salon who were dating. And so if I had done that photograph in perfect light on a perfect white background, I think it would just have been a weird ad for a nail salon. But because I did it in weird low light with the flash in the corner of the nail salon in this shitty background, it became a photograph. (laughs) I read that you once said, I don't have to know my subjects, but I have to understand them. What did you mean by that? It's like, it's not like we need to have an in-depth relationship for years for me to photograph you, but there needs to be some kind of connect. Like if you're a musician, I need to understand your sound. Or it can be, you know, coming from like an alternative scene of looking different. And even though I, I don't have a million piercings anymore, I still present slightly different than the 
regular 38 year old and I will see a kid and they'll have like a specific pierced ear or something that allude to the fact that they have something else going on and I'll be interested. I'm doing a book right now that's going to be called Salad Days and it's portraits from the past 10 years. And it's all the work that doesn't exist in shows or small editorial things, one-offs or whatever. But I'm doing about eight to 10 new images for this book. So there's some from 2022 because it spans from 2012. And I re-photographed this kit that came up and I had set up my four by five in the studio and everything was ready. And he shows up and he goes, do you know that it's been over 10 years since we photographed together for the first time? And obviously it made me totally mush that this 25-year-old kid was like that. And I was like, oh, oh my God. And he asked me, he was like, do you remember why you asked to photograph me? And I remember that so clearly. I had worked with his mom and I saw him and he was this scrawny little kid. And he, the way he was dressed was so personable. And I was like, he's going to be something outside of the norm. And so I photographed him for this project I had. And then in 2014, I had my first solo at V1. And I asked him again. And he had fallen and broken half his front tooth. And the outfit he had chosen for me to photograph him had this hole in his underarm. And I was like, oh my God, called it. This became like a long sob story. But now he's 25 and he shows up. And he's just is the exact same beautiful kid that I met all that time ago. And that's sort of what it's about for me. My life is my work and the relationships that are shaped from it carry through. And that's special. I wouldn't want it any other way. It's also like just the feeling of there's a lot of power in being a photographer and how you choose to present someone else. And there's all these things that I think are very important to think about in photography. So Meeting someone and feeling that connection with them beforehand also sets for a better premise for both you and the subject for a better result. The few times in my life where I felt like it's gone wrong, which I think will happen to any photographer, there definitely wasn't like that understanding. And people will see the image and they'll be like mortified. And you're like, oh, but I think it's so beautiful. And they're like, I look insane. What did you do to me? Mm-hmm. And that, that's a wild situation to be in. So clearly you also have a kinship for the outsider. Yes. Yeah. And and because I am one and uh, I've always felt like I was different, but I've always also had an ability to talk to anyone. And that's been my virtue in life. It's also helpful when you want to photograph like a kind of racist truck driver in Texas. How do you do that? Even though you're so opposed to everything coming out of its mouth, Right. Or doing a big project in Western Jutland where people are really religious. But I'm also interested in looking into what normal life is because I don't think anything is really that normal, right? Or ordinary. Like, what the hell is that anyway? (laughs) Just in terms of what you said about wanting to make your work collectible or an object of value. Yeah. Is that also closely connected to your interest in printing on various types of materials? Because I've noted you've experimented a lot with cloth, various types of papers, and and what was it specifically that sparked your interest in that part of the process? I think a lot of photographers end up in the business of being tactile because you sort of want your image to burst out of the frame. I'm sort of going the other way now. I'm becoming way more traditional in the way I print and like frame. I think it also came 
obviously came from like having no money and being like, okay, I got to find a way. If I want to do printing, how can I do it? Cheaper materials. How can I make it look the way I want to? And then at ICP, I learned how to do the color darkroom, printed a lot on newsprint, like all this stuff shot on expired film because you can get them for cheap out of necessity, but also because it looks awesome and it makes you feel awesome. (laughs) You know, like happy accidents and analog photography is great. And every young photographer I meet will have like a dance with it. I'm a little past it at this moment in time, but I might get back there. Right now I'm really into shooting on the 4x5 and printing on fiber paper and taking my weird expression and putting it into something traditional and sort of seeing how the two meet. An example is that when we did The Nephew Show, there was a problem. I did three pieces in the show on newsprint. And even though we did UV glass and I made like a contract for the gallery of like, not for the gallery, but if anyone were to purchase any of these pieces, they could, as long as I was alive, get a new print if the newspaper would deteriorate. That was sort of my idea. And they were like, oh, this is so insane and dumb. And this was my first big show with We Won. And it was really annoying to me that they didn't just get it and they weren't just behind it, but they're also a business. And I get it. And so we ended up in this compromise that those three specific images would be available on inkjet print as well as newsprint. The only three images from the whole body of work. And no one ever bought the newsprint. And it really was a real lesson in what market do you want to be in? Do you want to be in a market? Do you want to be in a commercial gallery? What is that? They're not just your collaborators. They're a business. And I'm very fortunate that I love them and they're like my gallery family and I get mad at them, but I love them. So it's okay. And they help me. But there were some growing pains for me in understanding what that is. And I know I have a very deep respect for artists who choose not to go that way, to not compromise, because there is a compromise. In connection with that conversation, you moving to New York has also opened up opportunities uh, in the commercial world. Is it correctly understood that in Denmark, commercial work as a photographer can sometimes be seen as a dirty word? And yes, the US has a very different perspective on that. I'm just curious what your journey has been like in embracing commercial work and being able to still express yourself artistically in that world. It's still like a struggle to sort of reconcile with it for me. I don't know if this is all over the US, but in my experience in living in New York, if I landed a good job that had like a commercial nature and I told my friends, they'd be like, good for you. Now you can like have some fucking time to work on your work, (laughs) right? That was the attitude where here, I feel like I've been excluded for a long time in certain conversations because I also do some commercial work. That said, I am really careful of what commercial work I do. And even in conversation with the gallery, they were like, yeah, you're making it really hard to profile you to collectors because you're also like known for all this mo work or whatever. That was like a real conversation and it was fucking hurtful because I'm getting paid way less than a painter would for their work because photography being what photography is in the art world. So then I have to like subsidize with a job, but then the job is a fucking problem. So it's only okay if I do commercial work, if I hide it, which a lot of people do. A lot of like great artists do that, right? Because they have to in photography. But because I chose to do something where my expression became a part of it, then that was a problem. 
I am not selling Mo prints in addition for a lot of money. That's not what I'm doing. I am keeping the two very separate in terms of like how my work is going into the world, but I need to do both. And for me, the two give each other like energy or whatever. I like working. I like hustling. I like being on email. I like all that noise that comes with that part of my life. And I would miss it if I was only in the studio creating shows and books. So I'll keep being in the middle of it, but it's definitely a messy pond to be in. Hmm. You mentioned Mo or Moo or let's just call her Karen. <laughs> it's probably easier. <laughs> yeah. um, you first met Karen in Ulnse back when she was in the early days of her electropunk duo more. Yeah. I'm curious how that relationship started and how does one go about setting the visual blueprint for the identity of what has since blossomed into a global pop star? I think we're friends first. We talk about that a lot. And our working relationship has changed over the past few years. I still do stuff for her. Like this morning I was editing a video for her. So it's not like I'm out of the Mo game, but it's definitely changed. I think she also needed to separate it more. I don't think I needed to, but I think it's been good for me. <laughs> I shot her last campaign and it, all of this said, it's not like we're not like deeply creatively involved with each other because we are. We're also making a book about our work. And I think we're both workaholics to the point that we would miss it too much if we didn't do stuff together. When we first met, I'm four years, yeah, about four years older than Karen. So I was an older punk. And I don't really remember this, but she'll tell the story of how she was introduced to me through a friend that was dating a friend of mine. And she was really intimidated because I was a part of Ungdam Suzu and all this stuff. And what I remember is just this scrawny kid being really cute. And then some things happened and she was at my, I got married and she was at my wedding performing a more song and she stayed on my couch in Brooklyn. And all of that was just really lovely. And there's a kinship there. Karen has a love for normalcy in a way that I do too. Like when I go home to the center and I eat Danish food and watch shitty TV, she definitely has some of that too in Ulnse. So there's definitely a kinship and having some values that aligned and both being like punk-ish, creative, but still also having that and like acknowledging that that's like a part of it. She loves going home and hanging with her parents and baking I don't bake, but I go and I hang with my dad and we, you know, I get it. And I think it just sort of fits. She has let my aesthetic be a part of her world for a long time. And I've had many different hats on in that project from like shooting myself to helping searching out who would shoot, if not me, when she was doing a music video, looking through directors and stuff. And it's been really, really interesting. And it's definitely developed the creative director in me and it's, made me want to do more of that stuff and loving the lifestyle of traveling with work. I think there's no blueprint, right? But there is this sense of wanting to keep a relationship going to make work feel valuable. Hmm. Because the thing that will happen in a commercial game like Karen is in is that you will feel like something you spent weeks on just be gone in a flash or just be a product. And that's intense. So having relationships around it makes it more valuable because then it's also an experience and a memory. It's life also. And that's definitely been a big thing for me in that whole experience. 
Can you sense that the stakes have been raised tangibly over time? Because it feels like from the outside looking in, you've been able to, in working closely together, evolve this identity of hers with integrity and originality. But I can only imagine that as her profile has just exploded internationally, that there are more commercial imperatives and voices and opinions than ever before. Yeah, it's been awful at times, you know, like in the beginning, they would never hire me for projects because I was too artsy, but we ended up using my images anyway, which felt so shitty. So Karen and I were just making all these things regardless, right? But they would never hire me as the official photographer. And then you see your work ending up on fucking Jimmy Fallon. You're like, why am I never the person that actually gets to pitch the initial idea? Why am I always the person that comes in? But then, you know, it was acknowledged, okay, they actually have chemistry and they're making this fucking good work. And then things changed. And now, you know, things are definitely way more respectful. But it is a commercial industry and it is a business. And the way that they consume work is different, right? And I definitely differ because I am also an artist. So I see how there's been a weird mashup in that. And like definitely in the years of the higher stakes, than me still being like a person that doesn't really fit the category. But I have still been appreciated as being valuable in the process. So it's been like a dance. Major labels are like a really serious business, you know, and even though you get close with a lot of the people that work there and stuff, it's a high pressure job and it's not their whole life. People go to work and they go home. So it is interesting to see how artistry and commercial worlds really can clash. It's also, you know, you got to like, I got to shake my own insecurity about it because it's also, you know, you want to do it all. I can't do it all. And I shouldn't. And she should evolve in her practice too and work with other people. But right now we're working on a book together, which I'm really excited about because it's making me dive back into the archive because we have an archive, which is in itself exciting. And developing this is just showing me how important the work has been for both of us. Hmm. And just on a practical level, when she's about to drop new music and the two of you start discussing the visual direction for the next chapter, does she share early sketches of songs or lyrical themes? Do the two of you start throwing around references? I'm just curious what that creative sparring looks like. She's very secretive about her music. It's the only thing I feel like she is secretive about. She's a very open book and she's very easygoing, but her music is only very few people that get to listen to anything before she's ready. So very rarely have I gotten like early sketches (laughs) once in a while, but no. How we do it is that she'll explain to me what her thoughts are and then we'll talk about themes and she'll start sending me screenshots and I'll ref back and send her stuff. That's how we start. But it's a continuing conversation too. So obviously in upping the stakes, when we did the Motodrome shoot, there was a creative agency that then presented a mood board to me and then I worked from that. But then it's hilarious sometimes because half of the photographs are mine (laughs) on the mood board. You know, so it is a continuous conversation. But yeah, so many people are involved. Fortunately, Karen's team are friends of mine at this point. You know, we went to her manager's wedding together as a couple. You know, so like... It's an ongoing conversation. Hmm. I think it's really interesting how you keep coming back to the fact that the friendship's at the core and that's so critical for the the whole creative relationship. It just is. 
You know, it's like, it's this. Okay, so she played Ross Kilda and she played the Major Lazer hit. And I listened to it and I'm so sick of that song. <laughs> But at the same time, I looked around and I'm looking at all these people that I care about in the project. And I'm like, this has made our life really exciting for a very long time. So I'm also very appreciative of it. And that's what it's about. Because sometimes you'll get so mad at the project because it oh, it sucks you up and it sucks you dry and it spits you out. But it also has brought so much love and freedom and travel and being with your friends all the time. Like it's just, it's what it is. I wish there was more in that. I think that the old punk in me still has some of this. I wish we were changing things more of how we work together. And like, you know, I wish that the major players would take more note of how you can also build community around it. You know, I wish I was seeing more of that and I'm not. It's still people working for free because, you know, this hopeless idea that it'll make a name for them, like all this stuff that I think is not just in Karen's business, but it's all over that I think is so gross. But I do think that the people that are involved in her project are really good people. And that in itself is changing things. Yeah. It's definitely not black and white. It's very gray, but I've loved it. Hmm. I wanted to just ask you about the project Never Run Faster Than Your Guardian Angel Can Fly. Oh, I'm so surprised. No one ever talks to me about that project. I, I'm very interested. Obviously, the resulting images were stunning, but it was also the fact that it came out of <laughs> house arrest, yeah. for lack of a better word. Yeah. Can you just tell me a little bit about what that meant to you personally? Yeah. So I was approached by Hans Monk from At Last Books, who's a great publisher a great guy. And he asked me if I wanted to do a book with him. And I was like, yeah. And at that time I was sort of working on a big exhibition, tying up the Solstice project. And I was working on this big installation in Tostropko. And the two projects were both in COVID limbo. And like, so it sort of came at a perfect time. It also came at a time when I was, and I think this is what you're alluding to. I was stuck at my dad's house. So the book is built on all these inspirational quotes that I collected on Facebook. And I did that way before all of this. I did that just because I have an interest in kitchen, like sort of sentimentality and like, it's corny, but it's true. That kind of feeling. So I'd collected all these a few years prior and I was like, I wonder what I would do with them. And oh my God, reading through them, they all hit me right in the gut. It's like Mike Tyson, you have a plan until you get punched in the face as short men cast a long shadow at sunset, bombing for peace. is like fucking for virginity. There's all of these that just made me feel like how I was feeling being stuck in my childhood home in Villasene, not being able to go. So that's how the chapter division happened. And then I just started like sort of creating the images out there. And I did them all in this old digital camera that I found at my dad's factory that I used for some of the early nephew's photos because I couldn't get film processed and developed. So it was also... Kind of funny like that. Hmm. Just in closing, Flew, we're of a similar age, slowly nearing 40. And I wondered, what is it you can say upon reflection you've learnt most about yourself in your 30s, be it as a person or as an artist? I think I've come to go back to sort of the finding peace with where I'm from. I think I'm also finding peace with the fact that my life will never be typical. I'm finding peace with the nomad in me, all of that is happening right now. That's been happening for a while. So that's good. 
You know, I'm 38. I'll be 40 in two years. That's wild. I don't know what that is, but I definitely don't feel like it's making me like weirded out at all. It's just like, okay, let's see. But I also feel like I've ticked a lot of boxes. I'm very proud of where I am right now with my work. There's still so many things I want to do. I want to show more in the world. I still have so many things I need to make happen for myself, I feel like. And the punk spirit hasn't been diminished at all? Oh, it has, but it comes back. Like it stays with you. I'm proud of it. I didn't stay in the scene as some other people did, but I didn't not stay there. All my friends in New York, my best friends are still from that first punk house. I still have good friends from the community here. And right now I'm subletting an apartment from an old friend from the youth house mom. So it's still there. But I'm also in a commercial game with my work and like I'm also compromising some. So that's life for me. (laughs) Seems like you're managing to live in a more nuanced world these days. I try. I I think it's just about reminding each other, right? I want to remind myself and my friends that just because you don't necessarily have a life that checks some boxes, that doesn't make it wrong choices. There's room for all of it. Like when I was stuck in the center for three months, I was telling a friend this the other day, that feeling, I was like, I all of a sudden felt like I needed to have a lot of insurance. I'm like, let's buy some insurance. I need to, you know, it's like a fucked up thing that I never think about or I never care about. You know, it's not like that. I'm, I have insurance. Dad, I have insurance. <laughs> but, you know, like I was walking around seeing people my age and they all have houses and cars and all these things that I don't have. And I was like, okay, I need to get all of this. I need to get a driver's license. I don't have one. And then I'm like, wait, who the fuck cares? I don't need one. So liberating yourself. I think that's important. Hmm. Full, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and hearing your personal story and I thank you so much for taking the time well thank you for having me Nordic Portraits is a series by me Ben Catford the music was composed by Nina Liu and the visual identity by Copenhagen based studio Frame to learn more about today's guest and all the others from this season visit nordicportraits.net You can also follow us on Instagram and remember to rate and subscribe on iTunes so we can get the word out. Thanks for listening.